Our loving Father, it is truly a privilege this morning to let your spirit speak to our hearts as we silently wait to hear that precious voice. And Lord, I know that you have mighty things to share with us from your words. And so I am asking for a fresh endowment of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would truly abide with my brothers and my sisters as well as with myself. We pray that you would truly unite our hearts, one with you and one with another. And may we catch a clearer vision of the great work that you want to see accomplished in these very last moments of Earth's history. Abide with us now, we pray, and thank you so much for hearing our prayer, for we do ask it with the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I begin sharing the word with all of you, I want to say thank you to all of those part of the Amen team. Some of you reached out to me personally, as well as to many of you who represent different parts of this country, as well as different parts of the globe. And you were lifting me up in prayer over events that took place last year as it related to my surgery. It is evident that the surgery went pretty okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I would not be standing here before you. And so I would be you know, remiss if I did not say thank you and God bless you to every single one of you who was praying for your brother. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter. Matthew, the 16th chapter. And I want you to see some things that Jesus is going to bring to our attention because I was very prayerful about, Lord, what do you want me to say to my brothers and my sisters here at Amen? And how should we start? And the Lord led my mind to these verses, so I trust we'll be edified. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, we're looking at the 16th chapter. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew 16, we're going to consider verse 13. And the Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And there was a nice dialogue that Jesus was having with the disciples where ultimately they acknowledged him as the son of the living God. But it was shortly after that acknowledgement that the Bible goes on to tell us something else that Jesus mentioned as it relates to this story. And I want you to see what the Bible says now as we go ahead and consider verses 20 and 21 of the same book and chapter. It says in verse 20, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. You can imagine that this was very depressing news to the disciples. They love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? And my brothers and sisters, when you have the privilege of being in the very physical presence of Christ and to look at his eyes when he speaks, I would imagine that love would just leap from our hearts as we would behold the master. And so it is that they're beholding Jesus. And as they're beholding him, they, of course, are hurt by the reality of what Christ just imparted. Nevertheless, Jesus knew that it was necessary to tell them this. It was a little bit later on in Matthew 17. Please turn there that Jesus again was with the disciples. It's a different location this time, but nevertheless, you'll find it was the same message. And here it is in Matthew 17. Now we're going to go ahead and consider verses, verse 22. And I want you to watch what the Bible says. In Matthew 17 and verse 22, it says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. It's interesting. First in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus tells his disciples, the son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. But on the third day, he'll rise. Now here it is. They're in Galilee. And again, he's telling them, son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And then he's going to rise. Interesting. Matthew chapter 20. Let's turn there. In Matthew, the 20th chapter now, 
Let's notice again what the Bible says. Matthew 20. And now we're going to look at verses 17 to 19. In Matthew chapter 20, we're now looking at verses 17 to 19. And I want you to see what the text says here. It says in Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17, and Jesus going up to where? Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. I thought this was a very interesting account. Caesarea Philippi, gentlemen, disciples, beloved. The son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. Galilee, gentlemen, disciples, beloved. The son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. But on the third day, he'll rise again. Then up to Jerusalem, gentlemen, disciples, beloved. He says the son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. But on the third day, he will rise again. Now, what we're noticing very clearly, very evidently, is that Jesus is repeating himself. Is that right? That's evident. Jesus is repeating himself. And I had to ask the question, why is it that Jesus would consistently repeat himself? Just give the same message over and over and over again. And the Bible gives us insight to this, but it's now found in Luke, the 18th chapter. Watch this. In Luke... We're now looking at the 18th chapter. And when you see what Luke says, he adds an element that helps us understand the need for repetition. The Bible says in the book of Luke, we're in what chapter? Amen. We're in Luke, the 18th chapter. And I want you to see what the Bible says as we look at Luke 18 verses 31 to 34. It is the same account of what we just read in Matthew 20, but I want you to watch this little additive that Luke brings to the account. The Bible says in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 18, starting at verse 31, then he took unto him the 12 and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. But the verse in 34 says what? And they understood how much? None of these things. And this saying was hid from them. And neither knew they the things which were spoken. Even though Jesus repeated himself and repeated himself and repeated himself, the Bible clearly testifies that the human mind has a tendency to forget the message. Isn't that something? Jesus would repeat himself over and over again. He spoke plainly, didn't he? I mean, son of man betrayed, going to be killed, going to rise again, third day. I mean, he gave all the details. But yet it seems that because their minds were so preoccupied, Their minds were filled with many other thought processes, even about how Christ was going to establish his kingdom, that it blinded them from being able to understand the most simple and plain words of Christ. It is at this time that I think it is appropriate for us to remember what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. That which is done is that which shall be done. And there is how many things? No new thing under the sun. History has this incredible way of being repeated. I wonder if we're living in a time that the very disciples of Christ, the messengers of the master, could it be that the beloved of Jesus, even in such a time as this, in earth's history, have a tendency to forget? The simplicity of the words of God, the simplicity and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it was raised up for, why God gave it to us, and how it is to be articulated and demonstrated in a very sinful and dying world, and in many respects, a sinful and dying religious environment as well. There's a piece of history in the Bible that I think we would do well to consider. The devil has always been against God's truth. Would you agree with that? Of course he has. He hates the truth because the devil brings sin because it brings bondage. Jesus brings truth because it brings freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you. Amen. So 
Certainly, the enemy hates the truth because he knows truth has power when received in the heart, lived out in the life, that it demonstrates the freedom that only Jesus can give. Well, there were things in the past by which the devil would seek to try to shut down the truth. But there was a methodology that was used that I thought was very powerful as I was considering our study this morning. The Bible helps us understand some things in the Old Testament times. Uh, you know, the children of Israel, they were under a theocracy. God was the king. God was the president. You know, they could go to God. The priests would go ahead and appeal to the Lord and the Lord could give instruction and they can execute righteous judgment. I mean, we never had to worry if God was being bribed. We never had to worry is God crooked. We didn't have to worry about those type of things. We knew God is a righteous judge. So it didn't matter. Even if he said go to a nation and go ahead and slay even men, women, and little children, we could still say God is just because God scanned every single one of their lives from the moment they were born down to their very last breath. And God knew who would best go ahead and go on and who it would be best to let them rest at that time. God is a righteous judge. Can you say amen to that? But here it is that we know that as the children of Israel went under captivity and as the succession of kingdoms and the children of Israel no longer could exercise the authority of God as they normally would or should or wanted to, that things began to change a little bit. And one of the things that you found was a habit amongst the people of God during the time of Rome overseeing over the Jews is that when the Jews wanted to practice certain things, especially that which was wicked, unrighteous, that they would now make certain appeals to shut down the truth. And I want you to watch that. You do know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it is that when they wanted to shut down the truth, yea, shut down Jesus himself. I want you to pay attention to a methodology that they used. The Bible gives us this account that it says in Matthew 27 and verse 2. It says, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to who? Pontius Pilate, the governor. So they go into the civil authority. And as they go to the civil authority, they want to exercise something of a religious nature in their minds. But of course, we know it was thwarted because they wanted to punish Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And here it is that the Bible shows as and so Pilate Willing to content the people, he released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. They appealed unto the governor to exercise the desires of their heart, which ultimately was leading to the suppression of the truth, the destruction of the truth. This was not only around the days of Christ himself, but even in the days of the apostles. Go to the book of Acts 25. Let's notice this story. You started to see this thing kind of play out. And there are many other accounts, but for time's sake, we're just reviewing a few. In Acts, the 25th chapter, this one deals with the Apostle Paul, a messenger of truth. And so it is that the Bible says in the book of Acts, we're looking at the 25th chapter. And now I want us to go ahead and to consider verses 1 to 11. The Bible says in the book of Acts, we're in 25 and we're looking at verses 1 to 11. Now, because this is a few verses, if you don't mind, indulge me. I'm going to read one verse. You'll read the second. I'll read the third. You'll read the fourth. And we'll take it down to verse 11. The Bible says in Acts 25, starting at verse 1. Now, when Festus was come into the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me?
For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. And if you don't mind, read verse 12 with me. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And so it is that, again, we see that when there was an effort being made to suppress the truth, in this case, it was the messenger of truth giving the message of truth. And when this was being done, again, now that we're no longer under a theocracy, you see this methodology, appeal to governmental, appeal to governors, appeal to legislature, go this route to try to suppress the messengers of truth, try to suppress the message of truth. God wanted us to pay attention to that. God wanted us to pay attention to that. You know why? Because God gave through the prophet John a message to the people. And John gave a message that should be in the forefront of all of his messengers in these last days. It should be in the forefront of our minds understanding because I marvel at it. Sometimes I'm on airplanes or I'm in a a building or I'm just kind of in a store and you strike up conversation with people. And people love to talk about the things that's happening on the news today. Have you noticed that? I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Obviously, I'm black. So if I'm around a bunch of people that are not black, they often like to ask me, what do you think about Black Lives Matters? You know, they like to ask me questions like that. And I take all of those as gospel opportunities. I'll take a question and turn that thing around and turn it into the gospel. The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. We got agitations now in the football realm. We have agitations in the governmental realm. We have agitations as it relates to natural disasters. We have agitations about who supposedly is going to drop the next nuke bomb and blow up America and the rest of the world. I mean, this is an incredible time to be very astute in understanding John's last day message. God has given that thing to us so we can lovingly give it to others. And sometimes we have to go to people to give it. But you know what's nice in the medical profession? A lot of people come to you. And if the Lord can give us wisdom, we can know how to share things with them that would ultimately reveal wondrous things out of God's law. But a messenger must have a message. Go to the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. Have you ever thought about this? In Revelation, we're looking at the 13th chapter. I want you to see what the Bible says here. I often wondered, how is this going to happen? The Bible says in Revelation 13, we can start at verses 1 to 3. I normally ask a question at verse 3, but because of time, I'm not asking that question. But in Revelation 13, starting at verse 1, I just want you to see what the Bible says. It says in Revelation 13, 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns, ten crowns and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him three things. What did he give him? Power. What else? Seat. What else? Great authority. Then it says. Power, seat, and great authority. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and how much of the world? All the world wondered after the beast. God said, pay attention to that. And then it says in verse 11, in verse 11 it says, and I beheld another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spake as a dragon. Now verse 12 gets my attention. It should get yours. It says, and he exercises how much power? All the power. So all the power the first beast had is the same power that the second beast is going to have. And the second beast uses this power for a very specific purpose. Notice what it says. It says, and he do, I'm sorry, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. And what's that next word? Causeth. That word cause means force. It says he causes or forces all the world. And them which dwell therein to what the first beast? Worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. In other words, a time is going to come to earth's history. Uh, If any of us are even minutely students of Bible prophecy, this second beast is speaking of none other than the United States of America. The land of the free and the home of the brave is ultimately going to get to a place where it's going to compel people to worship against their conscience. 
Now, the question is, how in the world is that going to come to pass? We have rights. We have amendments. We have all sorts of things. And so it is that you start to wonder, how is this going to come to pass that ultimately the land of the free, the home of the brave, will become instrumental in the enemy's hands to compel people to worship against their conscience? This is when, as I began to read, that's why those previous verses we looked at were very relevant. We saw that once you're not under a theocracy and now we're going around making decisions in a different fashion, no longer knowing if the judge is just, no longer knowing if the judgments are righteous. Now that we're living in such a time as that, we look back in history. We saw historically that when individuals wanted to suppress the messengers of truth or suppress the message of truth, that they would appeal to government. That was the trend. They knew, well, we can't exercise what we want, so we got to be wise. we got to be smart. We have to be strategic. And so they would appeal to people, and they would appeal to the powers that be, and ultimately, they would accomplish their desires. I remember when those precious 51 souls, or some would say precious 50, I say 51 because even though the murderer in what we understand to be that Las Vegas shooting, even though he, I believe, made number 51, he was still somebody that Jesus died for. Did you know that? Can you say amen to that? Terrible what was done. But Jesus died to save him too. And so it is that when these people were slaughtered, I thought to myself, I said, well, this is terrible. But I remember I told my wife, I said, honey, I said, you watch. As soon as the report came out, it was like, Prophetic eye just started looking and paying attention. I said, you know what? I said, you know what this is leading to. And my wife was like, what's that? I said, it's going to lead exactly to this. No question about it. It's going to lead to this and it's going to begin to push it even harder. We got to address that Second Amendment. We got to go ahead and make ABC adjustments because we're seeing a crisis that's coming to us. We are concerned about it and we are at a place that we are even willing to potentially trade freedoms For some safety. And here it is that when you pay attention to that trend, it's no wonder that we started seeing things like this. You know, Washington gun bills go into effect. Now, obviously, this is before the crisis, but it's to show that even before the terrible shootings in Las Vegas, after the terrible shootings in Florida last year. And then, of course, we have Tampa, where we just had another horrific shooting that is top news as we're speaking right now. But in any case, notice Washington gun bills go into effect. On Sunday, July 23rd, a number of bills that passed from the 2017, what? Legislative session went into effect that impacts your Second Amendment rights. You know, a lot of people get caught up into the minutia of, you know, well, what exactly is it saying versus what is not? Those things are a concern to me, but the larger concern is watching the trend. And what I'm seeing consistently as the trend is that when individuals get nervous and they get afraid and they get challenged, that they begin not trying to even come now, let's reason together. A lot of that effort is almost out the window. Nowadays, when people want what they want, they go to government. And they go to government and they say, we want you to pass a law to go ahead and exercise what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we're concerned about, what we're afraid of. This is not only true in the ideologies of the gun law issue, but this is also true when we think about the war on terrorism. The bans on our brothers. Can you say brothers? The ban on our brothers. They're at least brothers in humanity. I hope we can at least say that. The Muslim ban was a very interesting thing as well. Because, again, terrorism out of control. Radical Islamic extremists, somehow their activities, all Muslims, were suddenly being kind of blamed for it and and being picked on and being treated in a foul way. Now, I have personal sensitivity to that because if a black man goes into a neighborhood and robs somebody, that does not mean that all black men are bad. You understand that? So obviously, you know, I I can relate to that, and I think you can too. You know, it's like we all can from various cultures, whether we're quote unquote white, black, Indian, you know, whatever it may be. We know that this is wrong. But nevertheless, this took place. And of course, when individuals got concerned about the terroristic activities that are happening in our world, what did they do? They went to law. And so it is. Supreme Court allows Trump to travel Trump's travel ban to take 
partial effect. Again, 2017 article. And here it is that it says, foreigners with credible ties to the United States will be immune from visa and refugee bans for now. And the sad thing is, is we don't have a clear definition on what's credible. You understand that? So it's very easy to infiltrate bigotry or, you know, prejudice and these type of things where individuals get persecuted. Now watch this. It says the Supreme Court agreed Monday to let portions of President Donald Trump's travel ban executive order take effect. A partial victory for the White House that could, could come as a relief after a string of lower court defeats. Now, some may say, but Brother Lemon, didn't you read? It was an executive order. That's true, but it was not an executive order to vote him in when he already told us he was going to do this. That was people who were exercising what they believed was intelligence. And they said he told us he was going to do this before he became president. Now, I'm not here to knock our president. I prayed for him this morning and I pray for him daily. My point is very simple. We have to know how to love people. But when they do something wrong, we got to call a spade a spade. We got to be able to say, wait a minute, that is not right. That is a form of persecution. And guess what? It's to them now. It'll come to others later. If we're true students of prophecy. And so when we watch these things take place, my brothers and sisters, we are seeing that individuals feel things in their heart. And when they feel things strong enough in their heart, they will go to government. And when they go to government, they want the government to exercise what they're feeling in their heart. God wanted us to pay attention to this trend. And the reason God wanted us to pay attention to this trend is because though these things here are in our news articles, even in 2017. I want to take us way back just a little bit to 1998. Something happened in 1998 that every single one of us in this room should especially be concerned about, and it should be a topic by which we should find avenues to help other people be concerned about it. Though what I'm about to show you is something that took place in 1998, it's something that has a 2017 impact and will have an even beyond 2017 impact. It was in 1998 that an article came out that, again, following the trend, it did not appeal to reason. It did not appeal to, hey, let's go ahead and, and, and let's, let's talk with others and come now, let's reason together. No, it was an appeal on a whole different level, but it follows a very vicious trend that we see from the Bible that, ultimate, that ultimately led to persecution, suppression, and even murder of the truth. What was it that took place in 1998? It was a document called D.S. Domini. The document was put together by a gentleman that was very well respected throughout the world. Pope John Paul II. He wrote this incredible letter in D.S. Domini. And what he said in this letter, which should mean everything to us in this room, is he said something in this letter that you and I would do well to consider. Notice. He said, when through the centuries, she talking about the Roman Catholic Church, she has made laws concerning Sunday rest. Made what concerning Sunday rest? Laws. It says when she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind, above all, the work of servants and workers. Certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burden and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's Day holy. In this matter, my predecessor, Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical Rira Novorum, spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right, which the state must guarantee. Now, if you can read it with me, please read that last paragraph. It says, therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that what? Civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. We're a bunch of Sabbath keepers. We don't go to civil legislation to tell everybody, make the people remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that's not the philosophy being shared from D.S. Domini. The philosophy being shared from D.S. Domini is don't just reason with people. Go to law. Make the people do what we believe God is telling us we should do.
Question, is this good? This is not good. Fast forward from 1998 to 2013, I want you to notice something. We have a brand new pope, uh, you know, who's coming to office, Pope Francis. And uh, he makes it very clear he's a Jesuit. He doesn't have any problem with that. But I think a lot of times when you say Jesuit, a lot of God's people don't even know what that is. And so I just figured this would be just a quick little snapshot of education. Whenever you hear the word Jesuit, remember this. The Society of Jesus is a Christian male religious congregation of the Catholic Church. The members are called what? Jesuits. It says the society is engaged in evangelization and apostolic ministry in 112 nations on six continents. Jesuits work in education, founding schools, colleges, universities, and seminaries, intellectual research, and cultural pursuits. Jesuits also give retreats, minister in hospitals and parishes, and promote social justice. And what's that last one? Ecumenical dialogue. This is what Jesuits do. They have ecumenical dialogue. Hey, everybody, let's put all of our, of our religious differences aside. You worship Jesus. We worship Mary. It doesn't matter as long as we're worshiping. You believe in Saturday Sabbath. We believe in Sunday Sabbath. It doesn't matter as long as we're all having worship, as long as we're keeping a Sabbath. This is the idea of ecumenical dialogue. Put aside the dividing differences and let's all just join together and press together for the common good. Do you believe in that? If you don't believe in if you believe in that, you need to meet me outside so we can talk about what it means to be a Seventh Day Adventist. Because I can guarantee you anyone who names the name of Seventh Day Adventist should not believe in that. Oh, but it gets deeper. Here it is that it also says this. The society participated in the counter reformation. And later in the implementation of the Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church. Literally, that means that Jesuits, one of their chief goals is to counter the Reformation, to counter Protestantism, to destroy the protest. This was in, you know, this is just an article here. But then in 2013, the year that Pope Francis, New York Times came out with an article. I don't know how many of you caught it, but I'm thankful I did. New York Times put out an article. What did they say in that article? They said very clearly, responding to the question, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure? This was the question that was asked. I looked it up last night. The article is still on the internet. Google it. It says, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure? Pope Francis replies, together with a culture of work, there must be a culture of leisure as gratification. To put it another way, people who work must take the time to relax to be with their families, to enjoy themselves, read, listen to music, play a sport. But this is being destroyed in large part by the elimination of the Sabbath rest day. More and more people work on Sundays as a consequence of the competitiveness imposed by a consumer society. In such cases, he concludes, work ends up dehumanizing people. So he gave a little push there. But also in the article was this. Last October, about 250 bishops met in Rome for a conference on the movement called the New Evangelization, which focuses on reawakening faith in those already baptized. One of their conclusions was, even though there is a tension between the Christian Sunday and the secular Sunday, Sunday needs to be recovered. And read that last part in bold with me. In keeping, they wrote, with John Paul's Dies Domini. Now, what did John Paul say in Dies Domini? Christians should naturally strive to go to legislation and have them force everyone to keep Sunday holy. So they believe in that. Fast forward from 2013, you remember Tony Palmer. He was the messenger of Pope Francis. He came before a whole bunch of Christian evangelicals and he said, Luther's protest is over. And then he asked, is your protest over? It was an elimination of what we understand to be Protestant. You see, when Rome in the Dark Ages was inflicting and, and pushing upon individuals, you must believe as we believe. If you don't, you shall meet the stake. When Rome would put that, there were people who loved God and his truth and his people so much that they would say, death before dishonor of God and his word shall be our motto. And so that you and I can have the freedom today to worship and study the Bible and have wonderful conferences like this so that we could have that these people perished at the flames. 
They protested and said, Rome, men and women should be able to worship according to their conscience and not according to the dictates of church or state. Can you say amen to that? Now, my brothers and sisters, we have to understand that this is very foundational. The Bible and the Bible only righteousness by faith and by faith only. These were the things that made up that wonderful reformation. He came and he asked a whole bunch of so-called Protestants. Luther's protest is over. Is yours over? I wonder what they said. It was the leader, Kenneth Copeland, who was there. And Kenneth Copeland said, heaven is thrilled over this. That was his exact words. He said, heaven is thrilled over this. The protest is over. Heaven is rejoicing. My brothers and sisters, heaven was weeping. Heaven was weeping. The question is, are you weeping? Or are you too busy to weep? Here it is that they were saying, this is wonderful. And then they played a little video where Pope Francis put, put the video on the, on the camera. And Pope Francis says, I am nostalgic or yearning that this separation comes to an end and gives us communion. You know, he's doing exactly what a Jesuit's supposed to do, isn't he? Countering the Reformation. I want it to come to an end. But we have a prophetic warning. The prophetic warning says when the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Great Controversy 445. You see, we were supposed to pay attention to the trend. We were supposed to say, I know exactly where this is leading to. And the reason that this is so important is because, my brothers and sisters, just in a few days... October 31. Yes, some people will be wearing goblin faces and ghost masks. But there's a much deeper movement going on. Right at the time of this 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, when Martin Luther took those wonderful refutations of righteousness by works and all these things promulgated by Rome, and he put up that 95 thesis of the true principles of righteousness by faith. When he did that... That wonderful work led by the spirit of the almighty God. We're being told that right around this 500th year anniversary, there's something else going on. You see, this is a 2016 article. Catholics and Lutherans signed joint declaration accepting common path. Yes, there was an effort towards this in 1999, but oh, it is ever so sealed in this year. It says... Pope Francis greets Munib Yunan, the president of the Lutheran World Federation. Watch. It says the leaders of the world's Catholics and Lutherans have signed a joint declaration at an ecumenical prayer service commemorating the greatest schism in Western Christianity, stating that what unites the, true to, to the two traditions is greater than which, that which divides them. That's ecumenical language. Then it says the service heralded 12 months of events leading up to the 500th anniversary next year of Martin Luther nailing his 95 thesis to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Notice, in the presence of the Swedish king and queen, Francis prayed that the Holy Spirit help us to rejoice in the gifts that have come to the church through the Reformation. Prepare us to repent for the dividing walls that we and our forebears have built and equip us for common witness and service in the world. This is what's being emphasized. This is what's being taught and brought forth right now. Where is this all leading to, family? We already know. Or we should have known. I understand some of us in this room, and I say it respectfully, family, some of us in this room, we may be very nominal Seventh-day Adventists. Some of us, we are just affiliated with the movement. We return a little bit of tithe. Yes, we show up at church. We stay up maybe half of the sermon. We go home, and that's the end of our religion. Some of us may be like that even in this room. God is saying, if that's you, please wake up. Because God wants you to understand that there's a heritage that he has given to you, penned 
with the blood of patriarchs and apostles and with Jesus' blood himself. And God is trying to wake us up to help us understand that, listen, we are called to receive this truth in our hearts. And then we are called that we might give this truth to those who know it not. Last night, you were challenged. We were challenged. Are we barren? Are we not putting forth any energy, effort, or anything towards those who are winning souls? Do we look at people by chance like numbers? My brothers and sisters, listen, some of us are working under a system that does not carry the burdens you carry. And sometimes those systems say, get numbers, get numbers, get the people, see the people, give them your round of 15, 20 minutes, send them on their way because you got somebody else coming. And sometimes our hearts are burdening for the person we just finished talking to for those 15 or 20 minutes, but we have to let them go and go ahead to another. Some of us have hearts that are wide towards souls, but we're in a system that is not. And that's why God says, don't fall asleep. Don't let that thing trap you, because sometimes when you keep doing something, there's a little statement in inspiration that says actions repeated form habits and habits form character and character determines your destiny. God doesn't want you to fall into that rigmarole. He doesn't want you to fall into that routine. He wants you and I to wake up, snap out of it and realize the times in which we're living, because a lot of what we're doing right now that we think is so important in a very, very short time. I can't give you day or hour, or week or year. But even Jesus said in Matthew 16, pay attention to the season. We are in a season that we can see there's a lot of agitations going on that are making it crystal clear that the world is ready to go forth and to bring about these Sunday laws and all these things. The problem is God's people aren't. We're not ready to protest because some of us have given up our protest. And God says, wake up and let that protest that spirit of Protestantism rise back up within our hearts. There are some in this room that says, brother, I have heard this over and over and over again. When are we going to talk about something different? You know what I say to you? If there's anybody like that in this room, you know what I say to you? Go back and read Matthew 16, 13 to 21. Go back to Matthew 17, read verses 19 to 22. Go back to Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, and then pay especially good attention to Luke 18 and verse 34. Jesus repeated himself. And the problem is they weren't getting it. You see, the great mistake of the Pharisees, we're told, is that they thought that an intellectual assent to the truth constituted righteousness. I'm a member of the church. I already believe these things. I'm all right. My brothers and sisters. It's going to take a lot more than your intellectual understanding. It's going to take a lot more than your affiliation. And it's definitely going to take a lot more than your position, respectfully, to give you any favor with God, to give you any security with Christ. There is something that's coming. It's going to take the people in the world and the people in the church. It's going to hit many of us as an overwhelming surprise. God doesn't want that to happen, but he needs us to wake up. And so it is that I began thinking about it. I said, all right, Lord, the prophetic relevance of the work. I want you to look at Revelation 13 again with me, but I want you to watch it this time a little bit more carefully because now we're transitioning and I want you to see some of these final points. Watch this. In Revelation 13, I want you to go back there and I want you to watch it. We looked at verses 11 and 12. Now let's look at verses 13 to 17. Let's consider it, but I especially want you to consider verse 14. So now we're back in Revelation 13. Watch this. This is, this is beautiful. Revelation 13. The Bible says in verse 13, we did 11 and 12 before, now at verse 13. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
So here it is that the Bible's showing that this is where all of this is leading to. But look at verse 14 more carefully. After they do these great wonders and miracles, what did it say there? It says, and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. This is why we got to pay attention to the mindset of America. Because we're living, like never before, in fact, we're living in a time where the people feel it, so they say it. That, that's coming from the top. That's coming from the White House. That's, that, that's the ideology nowadays. Forget all this political correctness. You don't like black people? Tell them to their face. You don't like white people? Tell them to their face. You don't like Muslims and Mexicans? Tell them to their face. Let go all of your bigotry. Stop hiding it. Let it out. You don't like the way people are leading? You don't like the way people are functioning? Go ahead. Go ahead. Throw in some curse words. You don't have respect for women? Go ahead. Let them know. We are living in a time where the old satanic message of do what thou wilt seems to be the message of the day. Just as I'm flying from Nashville over here, in a couple of days, the white supremacists are going to be coming over there in Nashville. To make their protest and to now say it's our turn. You've been talking that Black Lives Matter stuff. Now we got a movement called White Lives Matter. That's literally getting ready to happen in Nashville. And I got to land in Nashville on Sunday. (laughs) Praying. Lord, please open the people's hearts. We are ever so blind. And it seems like we don't understand. And the question is, what are we going to do about all of this? You see, when we see all of these things happening, God does not give us vision to see the evils coming just so we can say we see the evils coming. When you read Proverbs 22 and verse 3, the Bible says the prudent man. What's another word for prudent? Wise. It says the prudent man, the wise man. He sees the evil that comes. But then the verse says, and he hides himself. It says, but the simple, they pass on. They are the ones who are punished. You see, when we're wise is when we see the evil that's coming and we do something about it. There's no virtue in saying, I see the evil. I see the evil just so we can say, hey, guys, I'm just as ignorant as you are, but I see the evil. That gives no benefit to anyone. God's people should have solutions. You know why? My little medical book. I got my medical book here. Ministry of Healing. In my little medical book right here, if you scan over whoop, the 363, it says the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. You see, if we have this message, we have the simplifier to life's problems. So I'm not joining with everybody else in a band of confusion. I want to be part of God's solution. And so the question is, when Jesus saw all these things coming, what should we do? You see, that's the question. What should we do when we realize a time of religious aggression is on its way? Did you know that God loves you and loves me so much? Because some of you might be saying, Brother Lemon, man, you're breaking down prophecy. You're helping us understand end time events. I appreciate that. But what does this have to do with amen? Adventist medical. Evangelism Network. I mean, what does this have to do with us? We're a bunch of nurses, doctors, surgeons, physicians, etc. What does this have to do with us? Everything. Notice, we're told that a time of religious aggression is coming. What does God want to be done knowing a time of religious aggression is coming? We are told, family, very clearly, as religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, Those who stand for freedom of conscience will be put in unfavorable positions. We just read that in Revelation 13. But then God tells us what to do in the next statement. Notice, for their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity to become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes and prevention and I wonder who's best qualified. I wonder 
who in these last moments in Earth's history are best qualified, or shall I say, should be best qualified to fulfill what God just told us to do? You know anybody, any of you know anybody in this room that can understand disease, its causes, ways to prevent it, and ways to cure? You know anybody? Does that have anything to do with amen? God says, I see a time of religious aggression coming. There's a time people aren't going to be able to buy or sell. Medical coverage is going to be gone. Medical coverage is going to be all messed up. But guess what? People are still going to be sick. The master pattern man, I wonder how he preached the gospel. He would go ahead, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And then he could say, now go, sin no more. That was the combining of physical and spiritual. I wonder if amen's a good environment to talk about this. It says for their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity. I love reading words and paying attention. It says while they have opportunity, it says they should, while they have opportunity, become aware. Is that what it said? No, it says intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention and cure. And then the next quote says it very beautifully. All those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. Don't ever worry about your job. God has already promised you. If you work and heal as he worked and heal, you have job security. All those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. The shortness of time demands an energy that has not been aroused among those who claim to believe the present truth. This is a perfect message to be given at Amen. Because by idea, you are best equipped or should be best equipped to do exactly what we just read. Knowing a time of religious aggression is coming. You should be the best ones at this. The best. You see, when we look at Jesus, remember this? Jesus came. What did Jesus do when he saw prophecy being fulfilled? Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee. Watch the text. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But notice what he says in the next verse. Saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So when Jesus saw time being fulfilled, when Jesus saw prophecy being fulfilled, what did he do? The Bible says he began to preach the gospel. Do you see that? He began to preach. He sees time being fulfilled. He gets to work for souls. When we see time is almost finished, we should get to work for souls, as we were admonished last night. It's not to get selfish and get into hiding. That's not the message. That's not following the pattern. When we see prophetic harbingers coming in sweeping succession, that is that time for us to say, you know what? I think I need to cut back hours. I think I need to avail myself some more. I think I might even have to consider a, a change in career. I might have to get some de-education to get some re-education. So I could work like Jesus worked. And so it is that as you look at that, now watch this. So Jesus comes, he's preaching. John was put in prison. He's preaching the gospel. Now watch this. How did he preach it? How did he give the gospel? Look at what he said, family. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's your first work right there. You need the spirit of God to do the work of God. But then in addition to that, it says this, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to what? Heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice what Christ combined family. Jesus combined preaching and healing. Jesus combined preaching and healing. Notice that. He did not just do a healing work because he was not, listen to my words carefully, he did not just do healing work because he was not in the business of helping sick sinners become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners. You get that? That was not his business. 
He didn't want to help people better fight against God. He wanted to meet six sinners and show them how to become healthy saints. Can you imagine? That's the work of the gospel medical missionary physician, nurse, surgeon, and the list goes on, according to God's mind. Now, when I started looking at that, then this quote comes along. Christ gave a what kind of representation? Perfect representation of true godliness. How did you do it, Jesus? By combining the work of a physician and a minister, ministering to the needs of both body and soul, healing physical disease, and then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. Can you imagine? It's the work of Christ. You know, if I'm an Egyptian, that means I'm from Egypt. (laughs) If I'm a Haitian, that means I'm from Haiti. If you're a Christian, that means you're a follower of the man, Jesus Christ. The question is, do you work as he worked? This was Jesus's goal. Now, you'll notice that Jesus did not say, I came to treat. Now, please understand, I'm not here to insult. I just want to be clear with the word. Jesus never said the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me that I might treat the sick. He said that I might do what? Heal the sick. Now, why is that important? Because I looked up the word physician. I love the way the spirit of God leads. I looked up the word physician. Miriam Webster, look at what the word physician means. A person skilled in the art of, isn't that something? Secular dictionary. A person skilled in the art of healing. Specifically, one educated, clinically experienced, and licensed to practice medicine as usually distinguished from surgery. One exerting a remedial and salutary influence. That's just a dictionary. Reputable dictionary, but nevertheless. I went to the Hebrew. I looked up in the Hebrew word, the word physician. It means to cure. That's in Hebrew, in the Bible. Physician means one who cures. I looked it up in the Greek. I said, well, let me look it up in the Greek. You know, I'm I'm trying to be fair with, with modern day interpretation. And then, you know, what I see in scripture, the Greek, to cure, heal, make whole. Physician. You know, there is not a single person that comes to any of our offices. I like saying our. I just want to stand in the position of a physician right now, if you don't mind. There's no one who comes to our offices saying, I I am looking to be treated. Not one person. If they have a skin condition, if they have a mental condition, if they have a heart condition, what are those people coming to you for? Healing. They're just saying, live up to your name. Live up to your title. I want healing. I want cure. And that is what we should offer to these precious souls. But my brothers and sisters, you have to understand this right here. Jeremiah 33, 6, behold, I will bring it health and cure. And I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. Notice Exodus 15, 26. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will get ear to his commandments and keep all his statues, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. You see, if we're going to live up to that title then that means that you must have a life that is submitted to the only one who can cure. We can't cure. You can say I've been in school for 8, 10, 15 years. We can say I've been in practice for 30, 40, 50 years. My friends, we know we still don't know how to cure. And the reason why is because that is a prerogative that belongs in the hands of God and God alone. And so my appeal is very simple. My appeal is this. This is phase one. Tomorrow, oh, we're going to hit phase two. Tomorrow, you got to come with your seatbelts, family. You got to buckle up. Tomorrow, we're going to go in. Okay? We're going to let God talk to us because the hour is late. And so it is. Are you willing? Like our title. Are you willing to be an instrument in God's hands so that he can work his healing power through you to bless others? That's my appeal. Are you willing Are you willing to be an instrument in God's hands so that he can work his healing power through you to bless others? But in response to this, you must understand it must be done his way. And we're going to talk about his way in a powerful way tomorrow morning. And so that is my question. Understanding the times in which we live, understanding the work that we must do. 
as we have seen demonstrated by the master himself. Paying attention to the trends of what's going on in our time right now, my family. My question is, are you willing, honestly? And this may not be for you to stand. Please don't lie. Even by bodily language, don't stand up if you don't mean it. Are you willing to be an instrument in God's hands so that he can work his healing power in and through you as it pertains to your practice and your servanthood? If your answer is yes, please stand to your feet with me. And tomorrow, we will understand more of how that unfolds. I want to thank God for the choice that you have made. We are living in serious times, but God has an awesome solution. May our hearts be submitted unto him and let him guide us. Let us pray. Oh, loving Father, we thank you so much, Lord. You have spoken to our hearts. You have challenged us and you have awakened us. It's a great work, Lord, and we don't want to present ourselves before you barren. Forgive us, we pray, of all the things we have allowed to distract our minds. Help us to regain our focus that we might let not our will, but your will be done. It's our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.